Father, I thank you so much for this day, and I thank you that we have the privilege to uh, sing your praises, to declare your excellencies, and to hear your word. And I pray as your word goes out that you would enable me to share it exactly as you intended, that our hearts would be pierced and changed, that we would reflect the nature of our Savior, your Son, Jesus, so that you would be glorified forever and ever. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, the reality is that all of us are sinners, right? If I ask you, have you ever sinned, I think every single person would say yes, and if you didn't, you would be sinning as you said no, right? The reality is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. And the word says, if we say we have no sin, we are liars, and the truth is not in us. Now, the world functions according to sin. That's how they function. That's how we used to function before we came to Christ. But those who have a true relationship with Christ should be sinning less and less. We should be sin-sensitive, confessing when we fail, uh, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, desiring not to do what we failed in or what we were tempted in, whatever it might be. And yet we realize that when someone names the name of Christ and continues in habitual sin, God has put forth provisions to seek his straying sheep. And the Lord Jesus clearly shares in Matthew 18 that he seeks his straying sheep by exposing their sin that they would be won over. But yet if one does not respond, uh, we see that God has laid forth provisions in his word what to do, and we'll look at that later. Yet what do we do when someone does respond to being spoken about concerning their sin? What do we do? Now, I'm not talking about all the little tiny things that happen around us all the time. Love covers a multitude of sins. Talking about when someone is continually habitually in sin, and yet they confess. They repent. How are we to treat those who may have sinned horribly, but yet have confessed their sin, who have repented of their sin? How are we to treat anyone in regards to forgiveness? Forgiveness. Uh, years ago, and so long ago, probably, I don't know if there's anyone here that was here during that time, so don't try to figure out who it was, but we had a family, and the mother had some issues with some people, and the, the, basically, you know, people would walk around eggshells or whatever it might be and would apologize if they misspoke or whatever, and... Uh, I uh, came and was talking to this lady and her husband, and it was evident she had unforgiveness towards one of those people. And she was want, wanting to forgive. And I said, well, you need to forgive. And she goes, you mean 70 times 7? And her husband snirked. And I was like, yes. And I shared the passage. The reality is that we as believers are to have the character and nature of Christ. And if we don't, as we heard even earlier in the Lord's Prayer, in the end of that, that our Father will not forgive us because it means we're not His. Now, we may have spits and spats of unforgiveness as believers in which God may spank us very heavily, um, but as believers, we are to forgive. So what do we do when someone has sinned and actually truly repents? How are we to treat them as believers in Jesus Christ? Turn with you to Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to be looking at verses 21 to 35. 21 to 35. And we're still going through Thessalonians, but at times I feel prompted by the Lord to share things that would be beneficial for us to remember and beneficial for our body and things that we might be going through, whatever it might be, beneficial for us. So I felt prompted to share this. Now in the book of Matthew, the book of Matthew is about King Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, uh, God in human flesh who has come to his own people, the Jews who were sitting in darkness, and they saw a great light. And he manifests his righteousness and truth concerning, and, and then revealed their sinfulness and the provision of salvation. And it's been over two and a half years since Jesus began ministering to the Jews. And within that, the Jewish people have hardened their hearts. They have closed their eyes to the truth concerning Jesus Christ during that time. They are unrepentant. 
yet they are seeking still to gain the things that they can gain from Christ. Even Jesus would say they are an evil and adulterous generation, spiritually adulterous, evil generation. Indeed, the religious leaders who represented them revealed their hate for Christ, wanting to destroy him. Then the Lord Jesus withdrew from them. We see that in chapter 13. And he began to speak in parables so that seeing they wouldn't see and hearing they wouldn't hear. And then he would explain those parables to his disciples to train them. And with that in mind, we come to chapter 18 of the book of Matthew. And we see here that the church, those who are his sheep, are very valuable to the Lord. And they're so valuable that he goes after them when they stray. And we see from the Lord Jesus' words himself through Matthew the process of how to come alongside someone who is unrepentant in the body of Christ. And today we're going to see what to do when someone actually repents when they've repented and this applies all the way down the line because you are going to be sinned against you are going to sin against others and you if you're a believer you're going to need to as we see out of the character of christ forgive freely as he did us or maybe you don't have christ in you we're going to see that so what do we do turn with me again matthew chapter 18 verses 21 to 35 and i usually read the passage we're going to go but i'm going to walk through that but i want to read the verses before this, because the entire chapter is threaded together. And there are so many verses in this chapter that people will pluck out of context and use. I'll give you an example. Some say, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, hey, we're in a prayer group. The Lord's there. No, that's not what this is about. It's about church discipline, as we will see. That all of heaven is behind two or three doing what God is doing through them to search for those straying sheep. So there's lots of verses like that that are taken out of context. And so we want to read the entire chapter through up to the point where we are at so that we will not misunderstand the parable that we are looking at. Verse 1, at the time, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself. This is really, you know, a small child, almost could be an infant, could have been given to him. Hand me the infant or can you, you know, whatever it might be. And he set him before them. And he said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children or infants even, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the reality that unless you are like a totally dependent baby that is completely dependent on their parents, you can't get saved. So first of all, before talking about who is the greatest, he's going to talk about how you get in to the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, whoever humbles himself like this child, such as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes, now don't miss this part, one of these, he's not just speaking of children, he's using this as an example. And as he says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, he's talking about believers, he's using the illustration or metaphor of children. And that's what that's about. It says, to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Hey, you're better off dead than stumbling a believer. One who's trusting in Jesus like a child, simply trusting in him humbly. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks will come, but woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. And if your hand, now he's using, he's using hyperbole here, by the way, and you've got to see it in that context. So don't run out and do what he says literally. He's talking about deal with sin drastically. Cut it out. And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands and two feet to be cast into eternal fire. People don't realize how horrible and terrifying judgment is, by the way. And he's telling us. And this is for everyone to read. Everyone in the whole world can pull this out and read this right now if they want to. It's for their, they can do it. They can find it. And he says here, see to it that you do not despise one of these. Well, actually, let me go back. He says, and if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better to enter life with one eye than having two eyes be cast into fiery hell. 
See that you do not despise one of these little ones. He's not talking about children. He's talking about children who believe in him as in believers. We are likened to children who are totally dependent on their parents. We're likened to infants in a sense. So he says here, See to it that you do not despise, treat lightly, look down upon little ones. For I say to you, there are angels in heaven. This is the only verse where we get guardian angels theology from, by the way. There are angels in heaven continually look upon the face of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus tells us this. They're very valuable. God's children are extremely valuable. They even have angels that behold the face of the Father in heaven. Extremely valuable. He says, do not despise. Then he says, for the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. Now, you notice that's in italics. That's a later version added in there to, to try and add for the context. It may or may not fit, but I think if we read through the context, we'll understand what it's, what it's meaning. He says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep... Now, this is interesting because he's not talking about lost sheep that are totally lost and not saved, in a, as we think of lost. He's talking about sheep that are his that got lost. That's what the, the, the analogy is out about, and we've got to see that. Because here you go. He says, uh, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, right? They're his. And one of them goes astray. Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go search for the one that is straying? It's not literally about lost sheep that are not saved, but straying sheep. And how is it when we stray? We stray when we sin. We stray when we sin. And it turns out that he finds it. Truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 which have not gone astray. Thus, it is not the will of your father that any one of these little ones, in context, little ones who believe in me, perish. And if your brother sins, here you go. Now it moves into church discipline. Here's how Jesus seeks lost sheep. And it's connected. Notice the and. You can't, you may have a verse that doesn't have an and in there. Write it in. It's in the original text. And. It's very important. It's very important. And. It's connected. If your brother sins, and some say the other versions that are later say against you, well, that's not really the original ones. It just sins. It's not qualified. It's just if your brother sins. And it's continual habitual sin. Go and reprove him in private. It means convict, expose. What convicts? The Word of God, right? If he listens to, that means he agrees. You know, when a person tells their son, listen to me, you're not saying just hear me, you're saying understand, agree with me at what I'm saying. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or more with you. This is a very serious thing. He's very saying, one or more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, remember the two to three again, that's really important, so we don't misunderstand verses out of context, that every fact may be confirmed. God is setting a heavenly legal case against a strange sheep that they might be convicted and won, or exposed so that they realize they're lost and then truly won. See, because God is gracious. He doesn't want any of them to go astray to perish. But he says here, and if he refuses to listen to them, that's agree. It doesn't mean he didn't hear you on the phone. It means doesn't agree. He says to listen to you, tell it to the church. That's the whole body of Christ. And if he refuses to listen, now the church at that point would say, hey, brother, what you're doing is wrong. Here's what God's word says. Repent, be restored. God loves you so much. Oh, no, it's not really that. No, doesn't listen. Then he says here, let him be as to you a Gentile or task. It says, treat him as an unbeliever. He's no longer part of the body of Christ. Treat him as an unbeliever. Gentile tax gatherer was a term. Now, remember, Matthew was a tax gatherer, remember? But he was saved, right? He's not saying treat him like me. No, he's, he, he's talking about terminology there, right? And so he says here, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Those are legal terms in the original language. Whatever you have spoken on earth, and literally the text tenses has already been bound in heaven. What you are doing on earth in trying to go after this sheep in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ has been affirmed in heaven already. And so he says, and whatever you loose shall be loosed 
on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Same thing, legal terms, binding and loosing. That's what it's about. It's not about chasing demons around like the charismatics. Not what it's talking about. And he says, I say to you that if two of you agree on anything on earth, that you, they ask it, well, she done them, excuse me. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. This is if you agree in the context of your prayers and depending on him about the church discipline that he's just talking about. And he explains, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, that's about church discipline, not a prayer group. Because Jesus is already with us. He's already with us. He doesn't have a special gathering when we gather with two or three people. But what is special about it is heaven is affirming the two or three that have brought forth the searching of his sheep. That's what he's saying. I, the, the shepherd who's seeking after the sheep, am in your midst. That's what he's talking about. And then he says here, then, verse 21, where we start. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I say, do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And that leads us into what we're going to look at today. So hopefully that makes sense, because the context of the chapter is extremely important to see flowing into what we'll see today. Because the forgiveness he's talking about is in relationship to awful sin that could have had someone leave the church. Put out as a, as a Gentile. We see it in 1 Corinthians one who was in terrible, wicked sin was put out, 1 Corinthians 5. Later on, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, restored. Caused sorrow, but restored. And thus needs to be forgiven. You see? Talking about major sin, not little tiny faux pas. Talking about unconfessed, habitual sin, whatever it might be. Or a big sin that is, that is then repented of. Repented of. We're going to see it's repentance, not just simply saying, forgive me, without any reality behind it. We'll see that, okay? So then, with that in mind, we have our passage. And notice we're going to see the occasion for the teaching that we'll look at today. Verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now, literally here, it's then. Then... After Jesus shares these truths about going after the very valuable straying sheep, he shares those truths. Peter says, how much should we forgive them? And he gives a statement here. Now, I've already mentioned, and I was going to go through and teach this portion, but I've already kind of walked through it as we, as we went through it ourselves. But the reality is he has shared already how valuable the sheep are. You better not stumble them. It's better than a millstone be hung around your neck and you're drowned in the depth of the sea. It's better for you to die right now rather than to face, face the consequences of stumbling a little believer. Well, and I say little, not small. It's a little child who believes in me. It speaks of a believer. You better not mess. They're very valuable. They even have their own angels face, you know, that, that, uh, that look at the Father's face that are in front of him continually, habitually. Very valuable. And then personally, Jesus goes after his sheep through the process of what I just described. He uses his body. It's the body of Christ doing his will on earth. He talked to his disciples, you'll do much greater things if I go. His body going about searching after the lost sheep by exposing the sin that they might repent and be restored or could be put out in that they would either let Satan get to them and they would repent or they would see their need for a savior and be saved. And so then Peter, in the midst of this, having the whole earthly process explained how the, all of heaven is behind it, two or three witnesses gathered in his name, asking for his, 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 him, anything in that context, in that context, he's in their midst. And so Peter says to the Lord, Lord, how often shall I shall often shall my brother sin against me. Now it's this person, making it personal, sin against me, and he says, my brother, and I forgive him up to seven times. Now, this seems like a logical question from Peter. He just talked about how to restore someone in sin. You know, what if someone says, I've, I'm sorry, I, I was wrong. How often shall I forgive him? Up to seven times? 
Now, before we get to that, I want to talk about this word that Peter uses here, forgive. It's important to understand what the word means, because I don't think we understand forgiveness at times, to be honest with you. The term forgive, aphemi, aphesis, those two different cognates, speaks of letting go, releasing, sending away, leaving behind. Okay? Forgiveness in this context speaks of releasing one's obligation or debt of sin. Canceling or removal of one's sin in a sense and thus the guilt and condemnation. That's forgiveness. It simply means when you forgive someone, you no longer hold them to what they have done against you. You let it go. And it's the same with God. And I'm so glad his forgiveness is, is what we should have, but it's the, it's perfect. When God forgives us, he forgives our sins through Christ alone, as we will see, and he releases us from our sins. We, it is let go. It is let go. Praise the Lord. It doesn't speak of forgetting sin, but releasing or canceling the obligation and thus restoring the relationship. When we forget, we understand this when it comes to debt. If you were to forgive a debt, um, you are letting the debt go. You are no longer holding them liable for that debt. Although the, 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 the issue that was there still is in your, can be in your heart or mind. You remember it. Hey, he owed me $30,000, but I let it go. And I no longer hold him to it. You see? It doesn't mean forgetting the situation. It means we release them from it. But yet, Scripture is very clear that we should forget. Paul says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. Well, we know that Joseph uh, didn't forget what happened from his brothers, but he didn't hold it against them, did he? He said, hey, you did this wrong. You meant it for good. God meant it for good. The preserving of these people. And he did not hold it against his brothers. He did not. His brothers were concerned. Remember he said that he might bear a grudge against us. You see, some people say they forgive, but they bear a grudge. They didn't forgive. They haven't letting it go. Because forgiveness, as we will see, is based on compassion towards the one who is asking to be forgiven. It's based on compassion. A changed heart towards that person that only Christ can give you. That's real forgiveness, as we're going to see. So Peter says, Lord, how often shall I show my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Now, he says seven times, and some people think he's trying to be a smarty pants and trying to elevate himself. I don't really think so. Um, basically, he probably thought the answer might have been three, because in the book of Amos, eight times, the term is basically this, forgive him three, then, then they're going to take care of it, in a sense. He might have got that from Amos. That's what the rabbis would say. If you ask a rabbi or whatever it would be, how many times should we go? Three times. Well, he says seven, okay? But look at Luke chapter 17, because we need to see what actual, when someone asks for forgiveness, what it really means when Jesus says this, when he answers this question. Because some people are really not asking for forgiveness at all. They are not in contrition asking out and acknowledging their sin and saying, I am wrong, forgive me. You see, that's when he's asking about someone asking for forgiveness. Look at Luke 17, verse 1. And it, he said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks should come. We've heard this before, haven't we? But woe to him through whom they come. Verse 2. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than, than that he should be one of cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Reprove him, okay? And if he what? Repents. Forgive him. Different teaching, same subject. Repentance is a turning from that. You know, those who confess and forsake will find compassion. He's not talking about simply admitting it but not agreeing. If you truly agree with what God says, it's, that's real confession. Some people say, I confess it all, I confess. No, you're not confessing at all. You don't agree at all with what God says about it. You have your own view that it's wrong, but it's not his view. When you have his view and you're fully convicted, you're going to turn from that. So if he repents, 
So here we have Peter asking this up to seven times. And from this question, um, Peter's answer is, or Peter's question is obviously inadequate. He, up to seven times, his answer of the question, obviously inadequate, because this springboards the Lord Jesus to share a parable which will explain about the kingdom of heaven and forgiveness and forgiveness. So then what does Jesus say? And within this, we're going to see three reasons why we are to continually habitually forgive if we are truly saved. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Well, what's, what's that, kids? And 70 times seven, 490, right? Do you think he's saying... He comes to you each time. Now, this is when he comes in true genuine repentance, by the way. That's the context. This is not someone coming in phony baloney, forgive me, forgive me. You know, it's real contrition. As we'll see, forgive me. I, I, wrong, I did wrong. Forgive me. And repenting. Do you think he's saying only 490, not 491? He's using hyperbole. He's saying, it's an unlimited, Peter. It's unlimited. If they're repenting, they're confessing, you forgive them, Peter. And that leads him then to share a parable. To share a parable. Jesus is going to be teaching here that when a brother repents and asks for forgiveness, asks for forgiveness, we are to forgive them infinite number of times. Infinite number of times. When they ask for genuine, genuine, genuine repentance, ask for genuine forgiveness, infinite number of times. So then, and then we have Lord Jesus then share a parable. And let me read the parable. Verse 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven, that's the sphere of the king, by the way, may be compared to a certain king. Now, this is a parable compared to. Not everything is, is equal. Don't get caught in that trap in parables. The word parable, para, alongside bole, to throw. It's throwing alongside something to reveal a truth about something. So the story is not the truth. It is thrown alongside to illumine certain elements of that truth. But all parables need to be explained, as we'll see. Otherwise, seeing you won't see, hearing you won't hear. So Jesus would explain the parables to his disciples. Now here, within this, he does explain it in the end. He gives the clear explanation of so then. If this is this and this, then this. You see? And so here he says, For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, they brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and his children and all that he had, and repayment be made. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrating himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. It's about debt here, right? Okay. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe says pay pay back what you owe so his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him notice he's going to say the exact same thing by the way have patience with me and i will repay you he was unwilling however but he went and threw him into prison until he should pay back what was owed so when his fellow slaves saw what had happened they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their lord all that happened Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should not you also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? Remember that mercy, mercy and compassion. And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed. Guess what? He now owes it again. Okay, it didn't get paid off, did it, ultimately? So, now here is the explanation. If at this point we didn't have the explanation, we would not be able to say for sure what this is absolutely about. We could guess, but here is the explanation. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you, that's the tortures, 
if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Changed heart that has mercy and compassion when someone truly comes and asks for forgiveness. Now, I've already talked about parables, and we need to be careful not to take them past their intended meaning because it is thrown alongside parabola to help explain the major truths. And where people, and, and I find this with certain types of teachers, they get in trouble by trying to find out the meaning of every little dynamic of the parable. If you do that, you will go past what was being intended. And you'll pick out little things and you'll have applications that aren't intended by God in what he brought forth. And that's not good. We're not to add or subtract from his word, are we? So then, he shares this parable to share a greater truth. And he begins to reveal, first and foremost, the first reason why we should forgive. Because of God's compassionate forgiveness in Christ towards us. It has no bounds. There is no limit on how much God will forgive and does forgive. There's no limits. We put limits, so that's too hard for me. That's too much. I can't forgive that. I'm sorry, God's forgiveness has no limits. Notice what he says. For this reason, verse 23, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king. This is an illustration, it's a parable, who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. He wanted to get things settled. It's just a parable. Parable. For this reason, he's connecting it to Peter's question, right? And, and his answer, 490 times, 70 times 7, right? He's connecting it to what he said, okay? And so then, he talks about the manner in which the kingdom of heaven operates. The kingdom of heaven is the, is the sphere of King Jesus, right? Now, the world is under Satan's control, but it will not be forever, But the kingdom of heaven is completely under the king's control. And this is how it operates. And we've been delivered from darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. So we should operate under the same principles under the king. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to, okay? A certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. Now, this isn't slaves as you would think, because later on, if they didn't pay, they were sold as slaves. So how can a slave be sold as a slave, in a sense, in this context? Slaves were people who worked for someone in a kingdom. They were the subjects. They were the ones who worked. It's an illustration. But yet, when someone was in trouble, they could be sold, as we'll see. They could be sold for their debt, to repay their debt. Because all they would have would be themselves. Okay? And so then he says, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be created a certain king who wished to settle his accounts with slaves. So he desires to settle. Look what happens. And when he began to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, this is where Jesus starts to use some language that they would go, whoa, because 10,000 talents in our money is about $250 billion. Okay, it's an extreme amount of money. He owed him $250 billion. It's impossible to pay back. It's, it's way beyond what is payable, right? And notice what happens. And he began to settle them. There was brought to him one owed him 10,000 talents. Just think $250 billion. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his along with his wife and his children and all that he had, and repayment be made. You still owe the debt. You're going to pay it. And what does this man do? Then the slave, falling down, prostrated himself before him. Now we're going to see that this slave does get it forgiven for a moment. He, he feigns asking for mercy, and God gives it to him. But his heart wasn't changed. Okay, Remember that. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And notice what this is. In this, in this parable, this story, and the Lord of that slave, Jesus is sharing this to us, felt compassion that's the word compassion speaks of the move of the inner 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 organs there was an internal compassion have you never felt that i hope so where you god gives you a compassion for someone it's your insides are being turned towards someone this person is is asking for mercy begging for mercy and he felt compassion and what did he do forgave him the debt forgave that's our word this debt that he could never pay that was so far greater than anything you could ever imagine remember that we read the ten thousand talents we may not understand what that is but here it's a lot 
The idea of compassion is very closely related to mercy, by the way. God's compassion. Remember when Jesus reproved the Pharisees earlier in in chapter 9, they were all about their external righteousness rather than rejoicing with Christ over forgiveness sinners and tax gatherers. Look back at Matthew 9. Matthew 9. See, they didn't rejoice about forgiving sinners and tax gatherers. They were all about their hypocrisy. No compassion, by the way. Matthew 9, 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, that's about people getting saved, by the way, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax gatherers and sinners? These are people that want to get saved. They're not like unrepentant tax gatherers and sinners. But when he heard this, he said, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. Learn what this means. I desire compassion, not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, or the self-righteous in this context, but people are sinners. People know they're sinners. Sinners. That's how he says it. We see compassion exhibited in the story of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. We see the compassion. Turn a little farther up in Matthew chapter 9. 36. And seeing the multitudes, this is Jesus, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the Lord, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. The kind of compassion we see exhibited in the Gospels by our Lord Jesus is the kind of compassion that's being spoken of here. It's compassion that is based on mercy. Mercy is help of the helpless. Now we're going to have to see that those who are helpless need to recognize they're helpless to receive his compassion, by the way. I can't repay. I totally, there's no way. And I need, I'm begging for your mercy. And God's compassion, out of his compassion, forgives. We see the Lord Jesus was moved to compassion of the spiritual state of those who are around him also. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have done this, but you wouldn't have it. You wouldn't have it. So then, back in our passage, Matthew 18, 27, and the Lord of the slave felt compassion and released and forgave him the debt. So what's the point? Well, obviously, the passage is about us that we should be continually habitually forgiving. But we had a sin debt that we could not pay. Way beyond. Billions and billions in that sense, if you compare it to a debt of money. Unrepayable. You can't make it up. It's unrepayable. And that great sin debt, when we cried out for mercy, Lord Jesus, save us. We acknowledged we owed the debt. We acknowledged we had that great sin debt. And we cried out to him and he saved us out of his compassion and love. You see, we have a great debt towards God until we repent. Turn to Romans chapter 2. You see, your sin just piles high and high and high after every sin, every thought, every word. Piling up, piling up, the debt getting greater and greater and greater. Romans 2, verse 2. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose, oh man, this is a religious man he's speaking to, Jews, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things, that's the wickedness he spoke of in chapter 1, that you, such things, and you do the same yourself, you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself for the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned his own way. You see, the reality is, apart from repentance, crying out for mercy from the God who sent his son, who died for your sins, calling upon Jesus to save you, you owe a big debt. And you will repay that debt in punishment forever and ever, because God is a holy God. But he sent his son to pay the debt for you. 
And he paid for it on the cross. And he died and he rose from the dead. And if you acknowledge your debt fully, not partially, you know, if, if you say, I'd like to be repaid of $4,000 when you owe $10,000, like to be forgiven, then you're, only, you're not going to get forgiven the whole debt, right? You owe. You see what I'm saying? Lord, I'm a sinner. I failed. Forgive me. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. And he'll forgive you every single sin, every single one. That great debt will be wiped clean. Wiped clean. And the reality is, in him, speaking of Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness, the letting go of our transgressions. Ephesians 1, seven. Colossians 1.13, For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the price paid, the forgiveness of sins. Now, this doesn't come apart from repentance. Jesus said in Luke 24 that repentance for the forgiveness of sins be declared throughout the whole world, which means you just turn from it. I can't get out of it. I'm in, a, I'm in sin. I can't. I can't free myself. But you can, Jesus, and what I'm doing is wrong. And you can free me, and you will. I believe you will. I believe you'll forgive me if I turn to you. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, no matter how bad your sin is, no matter how deep it is. The problem is we don't really see how deep ours is. We compare it to others. We think, oh, we're not so sinful as they are. Self-righteousness, by the way. And the self-righteous are those who are judged it is those who humble themselves. Remember the person who was, couldn't even lift up his head and pray, and the Pharisee was praying to himself in the book of Luke? I'm not like these people, those sinners. The other person is saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a big difference. Big difference. You see, we're going to see if you can't forgive, you're very self-righteous, and you're on your way to hell. We're going to see that. Because God's children... Those in the kingdom of his sphere are those who forgive. They're like his son Jesus. Now we can get tripped up, and I know that, but it's not going to be for long as we're going to see, because if it is, then something's very wrong in your heart. We're not to forget our former purification from sins, brothers and sisters. You may not have a forgiving problem right now. You may be graciously functioning in Christ, and the Lord is giving you the right heart, as you should, as you walk with him. But we should not forget what what we've been forgiven of. Ephesians chapter 4. Let's turn to Ephesians 4, verse 31. You see, based on our great forgiveness, we are called to forgive, as we're going to see. It's based on that. And so if you haven't been forgiven, then you won't forgive. We heard Jesus say it earlier. He says, if you don't forgive, my Father won't forgive you. That's not my opinion. That's God's opinion. And it's true. Ephesians 4.31 Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, clamor, slander be put away. Set it aside. Confess it. Get rid of it. Along with all malice. From you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another. Just just like Jesus, by the way. Tender-hearted. Forgiving each other. Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. It's always tied together. If you don't realize how deeply you've been forgiven, you will never forgive. And maybe you haven't really been deeply forgiven then. Therefore, be imitators of God, beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up as an offering, a sacrifice, a fragrant aroma. I'll read this for you. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. And so, and as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of what? Compassion. Compassion. Kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so should you. It's that simple. It's based on his forgiveness. Because of the immense debt that we've been forgiven... Because we are now in Christ, we are able to, when we abide in him, to tenderly forgive one another. Now, some, some sins have consequences, earthly consequences. There may be uh, things that are there because of those consequences. But there is forgiveness, complete letting go. The Lord is gracious. 
He has placed our sin as far as the east is from the west. His loving kindnesses are great towards us. He's compassionate. And so back in our passage, and the Lord of the slave felt compassion and released from released him from and forgave him his debt. You see, if you're in letting Jesus rule your heart, you're going to have the same heart. When someone truly, genuinely comes to you and says, forgive me, I was wrong. You're going to feel compassion. And you're going to forgive them. Unless you're self-righteous and self-focused. So then notice the Lord expects his true children to be like him. Notice this, point two. And, and we go down, he says, The slave therefore falling down prostrated himself, verse 26, Have patience with me and I will repay everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave the debt. But notice what happens. But that slave, verse 28, went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Notice it's important. Jesus is giving specific numbers here so that we recognize something. Because some people say, well, you don't know what they did to me. You don't know how much it was. You don't know. No, it doesn't matter. So we're going to see. That first debt was $250 billion, unpayable. But notice here what he says. Owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him and began to choke him and saying, pay back what you owe. Now, denarius was about a day's wage. A hundred denarii was a pretty big sum of money, but it's not unrepayable, but it's a pretty big sum, about 10,000 bucks. It's a lot of money, Okay. And so the slave goes out and finds another slave after being forgiven, quote-unquote, seemingly, at least is for asking for compassion, and he gets a pretty big sum of money. And or he finds another slave who owes him a pretty big sum of money. He starts to choke him around the neck. I remember this, remember this verse when I was taught it as a kid, pay thou what thou owest, you know? And I just remember the choking part, you know? The reality is, this slave, now, notice what happens. So the guy he's choking, so the fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him. And notice what he says. Jesus, in this parable, it's a parable, he says the exact same thing the other one said when he asked the king to release his debt. He says here, have patience with me and I will repay you. Sound familiar? But what, what did this person do? Verse 30, he was unwilling however but he went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he owed the point is there's absolutely zero compassion he is so completely opposite of the king so opposite and this is an illustration of the kingdom can be compared to this so opposite so notice what happens when there's no compassion guess what the fellow slaves who really have the same heart as the king they spot it by the way, if you're a believer and you see unforgiveness, you spot it. And it's grievesome. It's, it's, it grieves you greatly. Because it's so contra, con, contrary to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because everything we have is based on his forgiveness. So notice what he says here. So when his fellow slaves, verse 31, saw what happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. They were deeply or excessively grieved. And by the way, you're going to be grieved when you see unforgiveness in the so-called body of Christ. You're going to be grieved. This is not right. This is so contradictory to the reality of believers who've been forgiven completely by Jesus Christ. And so what, is, what happens here? Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave. Now, by the way, there's no place in Scripture ever that believers are called wicked the righteous sin, the righteous fail, but they're never called wicked. Just remember that. You wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. This is a this parable. Should not you also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? It's a parable. If you have truly experienced the mercy of Christ, shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow brothers and sisters? The answer is absolutely yes. It's mercy. They don't deserve it, but they're, they're, they're repentant. They're asking for forgiveness. How many times shall I forgive? And so notice what he says. He says here in verse, 30, verse 34, let me go back here. 
says, should not I have, should not you have had mercy on your fellow slave? And look at verse 34. And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that he owed him. As I read in those passages earlier in Ephesians 4 and in Colossians 3, we are expected as those who have been forgiven to forgive. We're not demanded in that sense. We're expected because of a different nature. We've been changed by the king. We have his nature in us. We should be merciful. If we're abiding in Christ, it should be part of our nature in a sense to have compassion on those who are truly asking for forgiveness. And we're to forgive every time. Every single time because of the great, immense debt that we had. So notice what happens. Notice what happens if you do not forgive. The Lord's going to make a point here. If you don't have the capacity to forgive your brother in Christ, something's very wrong. He says here, And the Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers, until he should repay all he owed. The torturers? The term torture was a legal, technical term, which spoke of one who was a judicial, judicially, judiciously examined by torturers. It was a way to bring about punishment that was justified. Tortured. This is an illustration. It's a parable. But he's going to move to something beyond that until he should repay all that he owed. We're going to see the illustration as you're on your way to hell. And you're going to pay for your sin forever and ever and ever and ever because you'll never be able to pay it back. It's way beyond what you can pay. So notice what he says. Here's the point. Now this is where it moves out of the parable into the reality. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from the heart. Now some say this is a believer who lost his salvation. That's not true. It's a parable to explain about this. This person, obviously, he's, the point Jesus is making is obviously if you have been forgiven, you should be changed in that you would be like your master. And those who were truly his slaves or his servants were grieved by it. And he then says, you wicked slave. And guess what? He has to pay back all he owed. It, didn't, it ultimately wasn't forgiven in that sense because he truly, genuinely didn't receive that with the right heart. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from the heart. The reality is torture is not a pretty sight. God is willing to forgive you completely. Now, there may be believers who stumble into lack of forgiveness. It's very evil. It is very, very, very evil. And you are going to be disciplined by God, Hebrews 12. It's redemptive, not torture may seem like torture to you, but it's not. It's redemptive. But don't forget, if you do not forgive, you give Satan a place. And Satan does not do well with believers, doesn't treat them very well, by the way. He seeks someone to devour, by the way. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This is a situation in the Corinthian church where evidently the sin of First Corinthians Chapter 5 of someone being with his mother's, with his, some tor- terrible, terrible sexual sin, okay? Terrible. And they're put out of the church. Church discipline, they're put out. And there's great sorrow because of it. Great sorrow upon the person. The person actually responds and repents. That's what I believe is going on in chapter 2 of Second Corinthians. And so how are we to treat them? God tests his people to see if they treat them the right way, by the way, or give Satan a place. It says in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, verse 6, Sufficient for one is the punishment which, I, which was inflicted on the majority, so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him, that's the person in a sense, lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. There's still a compassion for this person that's repented. You see, even though he's done terrible sin, there's compassion. Wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end I also wrote you, that I might put you to the test to see whether you are obedient in all things. Or are you going to forgive? 
But whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Look at this. In order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Believer, if you have a spout of unforgiveness, which is incredibly evil, which is contrary to your nature, Satan's got a place in you, okay? It's evil. It's terrible. Repent. But if it continues, I would examine yourself to see if you're truly in the faith. Jesus said in that, in, actually in Matthew, in the Lord's Prayer we've talked about, he said, uh, if you don't forgive, my Father won't forgive you. If you can't find yourself to forgive, there's something very, very, very wrong. Very wrong. He says back in our passage, verse 35, So shall my heavenly Father also do to you, if each of you does not forgive his brother from the heart. It's not lip service. It's not forced to do it because God says so. It's true compassion because you've been forgiven so much. And you have the compassion of Christ when someone truly repents. You should be thankful. Angels rejoice when people repent. Be thankful. Wow, it hurt me a lot, and I'm still hurt from it, but I'm so thankful. So thankful you repented and you're restored with Jesus. I forgive you. should be a different heart. If you don't have it, you may be on your way to hell. The very clear implication here in God knows the heart is if you don't forgive, you are on your way to hell. That's what he says. If you can't forgive someone continually, habitually, who has come to you, especially a brother and sister in Christ, and asked for forgiveness, truly repented, and you can't forgive and you never have and you won't do it, I would examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. You're on the precipice of eternal judgment and you might say something like okay i guess i'm damned whatever well the reality is you don't understand what you're saying what you're saying is is you're evidencing the reality that you have no idea what eternal punishment is here we see it's called torture in a sense and you'll never repay it and it'll be forever but god is gracious And if you're willing to humble yourself and admit your great, immense sin, stop looking at other people, what they've done to you. Admit your sin. Confess it. God will save you. That huge debt. If you do so. And then you will be able to, by his nature, forgive. And you will actually rejoice when someone confesses their sin. Even though you may be hurt and there may be lasting consequences What happened is glorious. Confession of sin, restoration with Jesus should move you to compassion to say, I forgive you. Well, there's some of us who maybe are not in unforgiveness. We shouldn't be as believers. should be almost every one of us, basically. Um, With that in mind, how should we apply this passage? Well, we should recognize the great debt that we've been forgiven. Measurable. Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. Thank him. Praise him for your forgiveness of sins. Don't be self-righteous. Don't pull the log out of your eye. Praise the Lord for forgiveness in Jesus Christ. What a gracious, merciful, compassionate God we serve. And then allow his heart, his mind to be manifest in you as you interact with your brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the tremendous forgiveness we have in you. And Father, that you loved us so much, you would send your only son to die for us. Thank you so much. May we never be like this wicked slave. Wherever tempted, may we turn immediately and allow your compassion to be manifest in us. But Lord, I pray for anyone who is like this wicked slave, that they would recognize they are wicked and that they are on the precipice of eternal judgment. It doesn't matter how deep and how far the debt was, the sin. If you can't forgive, you say in your word that you will not forgive. I pray for them, Lord God, please, that they would be forgiven by humbling themselves before you. And then they would forgive. I thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness. It is the most glorious thing. 
May we as a body be praising you for your forgiveness. May we be those because you have forgiven us in Christ, continually forgiving one another for small, big, whatever it is. Be those who let things go in Christ so that love would be maintained and your glory would be exalted. Pray this in Jesus' name.